The text for this morning's sermon is Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. If you want to turn there, Luke 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said, to the Lord. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost." Uh, Father, as we come to this familiar text, I pray that we would worship you, that we would glory in your amazing grace seen most clearly through Christ. Father, I pray that we would learn more about you, what you're like this morning. Father, you are the vision that brings joy. You're the greatest vision we could ever have. That we might know you more in light of this text. And Father, that you might save someone this morning. That you might... Save according to your good pleasure. Father, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope this doesn't embarrass you, Georgia. Georgia just leaned over and says, are we going to sing Zacchaeus? <laughs> she knew what we were, uh, what I was going to preach on in the text uh, we were looking at, and Scott, Georgia might have some words for you after the service, uh, questioning the song selection. Uh, but I remember as a kid, I heard this story. The main point I got out of it is don't climb trees. Because when Jesus sees you in a tree, he says, Zacchaeus, you come down. <laughs> Sometimes our children's stories and songs uh, don't help us get at the heart of a text. Uh, 
If you ask the average Christian, what do we learn from this passage? One of the first things someone might say is Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was small. That is true. That's not the main point of the text. And so whenever we come to Scripture, we should ask ourselves, what does the Holy Spirit want us to see? These are His words spoken through Luke. And they come within a context of a whole account of Jesus' life that Luke is getting together for Theophilus. And I was amazed at the, benef- the benefits of expository preaching, takes, taking one text after another text after another text. We get to see how these sections of the Scripture aren't disconnected, but they're connected to one another. And I couldn't help but see when I begin to read this text, uh, the fact that Jesus was a rich tax collector. And what comes to my mind? We've just been talking about tax collectors in chapter 18. In fact, uh, in verse eight, or chapter 18, verse 13, uh, if you remember the climax of this story, you have a Pharisee praying all about the great things he is, thanking God that he's different. And then you have this tax collector that says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says it's that man that went down to his house justified, forgiven. And so it would have been shocking. Jesus was shocking to his culture And so right away I started reading this. I'm like, oh, we've heard about tax collectors. One got saved, which shocked people because tax collectors were the lowlifes. The tax collectors were those who would extort money from those in Israel. Rome would sell tax collecting franchises to the highest bidder and require a certain amount of tax to be collected. And whatever was collected on top of that would go into the pockets of the tax collectors. And the tax collectors would hire intimidating soldiers, which by force would uh, force people to give more than they could afford. And so it was amazing that a tax collector could be saved. And then... uh, We're surprised in verses uh, 15 through 17 when Jesus wants little babies to come to him. And he says, unless you uh, receive the kingdom of God like a child, you won't enter. Unless you have the humility of a child that can point to nothing in and of himself. If you've received Christ in any other way, God, I'm a good one now. I'm a smart one now, so I'm going to follow you. If you receive Christ in that way, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven because it's according to you and your wisdom and your new enlightenment. And then we get the rich young 
ruler who seemed to have it all together and wants to know what he must do to enter the kingdom of God. And what, what do we remember ab- about this young man? He was rich. And Jesus said that it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, which shocked them. Because in their thinking, no one was getting in before the rich people because they were rich because God blessed them. And so Jesus was saying, the one you think that's getting in for sure, it's easier for the rich man to get in than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And the point of that is it's impossible. Who then can be saved, the disciple said. And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So we have a rich tax collector in which it's impossible for him to be saved unless God does something. That's how we're primed up to this point. That's the narrative that has led us here. And within that narrative, Jesus predicts his death. And within, also within that narrative, a blind man has faith. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And so you have the pieces of salvation seen in this last chapter. You see a man repenting, crying out for mercy. How can God justify him? Well, Jesus is going to a cross. It was the blind man's faith that made him well. And so we come seeing certain words in our text that cause us to remember what's already been spoken of. You think of the rich man when Jesus says, uh, the rich young ruler, he says, you can have treasure in heaven and me or you can, the alternative would be to reject treasure in heaven, keep his own wealth and walk away from Jesus. And the title of that message was the sad walk away from Christ. But here we have a rich man in front of us that joyfully is going to follow Christ and receive Christ. And not only that, he's going to let go of his wealth. And so you can see in your notes, see Jesus seek and save ruined sinners and place your trust in him alone. At first glance, I thought this might be a sermon on repentance because Zacchaeus shows a true repentance that comes from someone that's sincerely born of God. But that's not what Luke highlights. He mentions it, but he highlights the Savior. He wants us to see the miracle that happens in Zacchaeus' life. 
So let's first see how Jesus saves personally. Here's where we read in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So rarely is Luke naming someone by name. Zacchaeus ironically means clean, innocent, pure, and righteous. That's, that's what the name means. So he undoubtedly would have been mocked in his day as one whom any good Jew would have to reject. To be, to encounter, or to have contact with, or to eat with, or to walk into the home of someone who is so defiled as a tax collector would have been unthinkable for the good Jew. So he would be a social outcast, but he was rich. He, he had money. We, we read that he was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was at the top of the pyramid. If tax collectors were able to extort and, and become rich by collecting more, the chief collect, tax collector would collect the most. And we read in verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So you can imagine, Jesus is in town. The emphasis is here in the text, it says he was seeking to see. He's in this process. We don't know if it was just right now or if or if he was wanting to see him. Jesus would have been a tough one to see. If you remember, Herod had been seeking for a long time to see Christ. Where Christ went at, at this point in time, there were such large crowds, it would be tough to see him. And so here's Zacchaeus in the midst of a big crowd, wants to see Jesus. He has an opportunity to see Jesus. It seems like in God's providence, his heart is ready to see Jesus. The rich young ruler seemed to come like, good teacher, what must I add to my life? Zacchaeus seems desperate to put himself in front of Christ. And so you can imagine the real life scenario. He's trying to get in. He's small. He can't push his way through. He can't get on his tiptoes. Jesus is moving this way. My hope is to get in front of the crowd. And it would do no good to get in front of the crowd if he would just be pushed away. So he climbs up in a sycamore tree or a mulberry tree. A tree that had branches that... Uh, started going out horizontally pretty quickly, a tree that would be easy to climb. Zacchaeus climbs the tree. We read in verse 4, he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. I remember my spiritual disciplines uh, uh, 
professor, uh, actually it was, I think, a book that he gave us to read. They described the spiritual disciplines, kind of illustrated it with Zacchaeus. Uh, praying, uh, reading the scripture, uh, worshiping together with God's people. Put yourself in front of Christ where you're going to have contact with him. They pointed to this uh, as an illustration. And we read in verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Those are two commands. Those are imperatives. These are Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, looking at Zacchaeus and calling him personally by name. That's the shocking aspect to this. He knew Zacchaeus. For I must stay at your house today. Here's what MacArthur says about the word translated must. He says it's used throughout Luke's Luke's gospel to speak of divine necessity. Like in Luke 9.22, when Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Christ must die. Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. Two commands with Jesus personally calling, inviting himself into Zacchaeus' home. It's interesting, as we think of the divine appointment, we see it so visually. (laughs) If you were saved, you were saved just as personally. We weren't saved generally, and Zacchaeus was called and saved and sought out by Jesus Christ personally. We're going to see in this text that the reason Jesus came was to seek and save ruined sinners, the lost, specifically calling them by name. Here's how John spoke of this type of salvation, the type of salvation where a person's born again. He says, the wind blows, this is John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or from where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here, Jesus, in that passage, told Nicodemus that he needs the Spirit of God to do specific work. Well, how does that work? It's like the wind. This is God's sovereign work. We also see in Luke, this word must be in use. Luke 13, 31. At that very hour, 
some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and performed cures and and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So it's a personal call. And secondly, see how Jesus saves fruitfully. We don't get to see uh, the conversation. We don't get to hear Jesus unfold the gospel to him and reveal how he's the son of God that he might trust in him. But what we see is the results of salvation in verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And we also see the results. We're going to skip verse 7 right now. We'll come back to that in verse 8 where we read Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Literally, in verse 8, it says, Zacchaeus took his stand and said, Behold, Lord. Zacchaeus is professing Jesus Christ as Lord in a sense where he takes his stand and says, you're the one I'm following. It's you who are Yahweh, who, are, who is Lord. Romans 10.9 tells us, Because you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So we get to see Zacchaeus' repentance and his confession of Christ as Lord here. It's important to see that it's not because he confessed his sins and said he was going to pay back restitution fourfold for that which he sold. That's not the reason God saved him, but that is the results of a heart that has changed. Because the rich man, it's impossible for a rich man to do that. It's impossible for a rich man to be saved unless God does something, right? We already saw that in chapter 18. So Jesus doesn't look at his good deed and says, oh, okay, now salvation has come to the house. This is evidence of the salvation. It's in contrast to the rich young ruler. The deepest seated idol in a rich man probably is his wealth. And amazingly, Zacchaeus is letting go of that root idolatry that has held him in slavery 
and sees Christ as more valuable. And we ought to ask, how can that happen? How can that just momentarily happen where his whole life changes? He becomes a new creation. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and that is not of your own doing, but it is a work of God. We need new affections. We need to see that treasures in heaven and following Christ are so much better than treasures on this earth. And so, while we might be tempted to say, great job, Zacchaeus. What a good person you are. Great choices you just decide to make. Luke, writing, being led by the Holy Spirit, highlights God's work in Zacchaeus' life, not Zacchaeus' work in Zacchaeus' life. But when a person is truly converted, amazing things do happen. I want to give you an illustration from 2 Corinthians 8. When Paul's trying to collect this offering... For the saints in Jerusalem, here's what he says, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given. A gift that's been given. That's what Paul wants them to know about. Among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of partaking in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. <laughs> so Paul says, I want, I want to tell you about the grace of God. I want to tell you about the gift of God. People were begging to give an offering. Can we, can we all just admit that it, if that happens, people are asking and begging to get rid of their wealth for the good of another. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. What's happened? Has a good decision happened? Grace has happened that needs to be highlighted. And that's what Luke highlights in this text. Let's see how this saving Christ was offensive to his people. The way God saves is offensive to the natural man. He does it in a way we wouldn't do it. He does it sovereignly. He doesn't give us the reins to salvation. He didn't save the good ones. Look at verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone, to, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Here's what MacArthur writes about this. He says, this word grumble is a strong word indicating the crowd's intense disapproval of the Lord's action. Not only speaking with Zacchaeus, 
but also staying the night. The verb translated gone to be the guest means to loosen one's clothing in preparation to, for staying overnight. No self-respecting Jew would ever pollute himself by staying at the house of the chief administrator of Roman taxation. That, however, meant nothing to Jesus, who was on a divine mission, established by the divine sovereign electing grace and operating on divine, the divine timetable to bring this lost sinner to salvation. Jesus did the unthinkable. It wasn't just that a tax collector said, come into my house. It was Jesus' idea. It was his command. He picked the biggest dirt bag in the crowd and said, I'm coming to your house. Not only am I coming, I'm spending the night. That would have been ultimate defiling. And I'm telling you, sinners, this is good news for us. We ought to read this and say, there's hope for me. If Christ called him, there's hope for me. And it, this just reminds me of, so the crowd's offended how different Jesus is from the crowds. Back in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the 72 and they cast out demons and they were so excited about the power of God, they saw God working through them. Such a surprising thing is said, and this might offend you, and it would have offended them. But here's what Jesus says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's speaking to the believers. And he says, don't rejoice in the power you have right now, but your names are written in heaven. And then it says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Only two times in the New Testament does it say Jesus rejoiced. And we ought to ask ourselves, well, what would Jesus rejoice in? Something that might offend you. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, meaning he's sovereign, that you have hidden these things from the wise in understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You see, he didn't say, oh, yes, was your cruel will, hiding truth from one set of people, giving it to another. And then he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, or the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There will never be a person that knows the Father in a saving way unless Jesus Christ personally reveals himself to them. And that's offensive today. And the saving Christ was offensive then. The entire crowd, it seems, from this text 
was horrified and furious with what ought to have been the best news for sinners. If God can save Zacchaeus, he can save anyone. Let's look at verse 9. Let's see how Jesus saves sovereignly. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since... Now, notice what he doesn't say. Since he's going to pay back what he sold fourfold. That's not the reason salvation came to Zacchaeus' house. But here's the reason. Since he also is a son of Abraham. Well, that's weird. Zacchaeus has always been a son of Abraham, ethnically. But we know from the New Testament, from passages like Romans 2, 28, where Paul says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. You're not just born a Jew nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit and not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the true Jew is one who is circumcised, not outwardly, but of the heart by the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing Jesus told Nicodemus. You need to be born of the Spirit. You need to be circumcised of the heart. And then we read on. So this is obviously highlighting God's work of regeneration. Where a heart is circumcised and where a person believes from within that new, newly resurrected Heart. Someone might say, well, don't you have to believe to be saved? Yes. I could, if there was a dead body here, I could say, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. He's never going to get up because he's dead. Yes, you have to believe to be saved. But how can someone who is spiritually dead with a, a hater of God and rebellion to God ever get up unless when that command to get up is within it, given the power of the new birth to believe. No one is saved against their will. Everyone is saved willingly. The difference is, is can you make yourself willing to will something outside your nature? Yes, you're free within your nature. Adam and Eve could eat from every tree of the garden except one. Their freedom was limited. It's not a total freedom. No one has total freedom. Only God is autonomous. All of us are accountable to God. And we read in the scripture, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so what's needed to become a son of Abraham is a circumcision of the heart. And then if you're going to 
Read on in Romans 9, controversial chapter of the Bible. We read this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. All these Jews crucified Christ. Has God failed in his promises? Well, look at what he says. For not who all, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. And someone might say, well, Isaac's the offspring of Abraham. So isn't he a child because he's Abraham's son? Here's, here's what he says in verse 8. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted offspring. You see that? So when Jesus is pointing to Zacchaeus being saved because he's a child of Abraham, he's pointing to electing grace according to the promise that is brought to life through the circumcision of the heart. And you know, he continues on. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? This is after he said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. By no means, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See? And secondly... When he points to Abraham, I think he's pointing to two things. And the second thing you've probably already guessed. In Galatians 3, Paul writes, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying that in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So when he says Zacchaeus is saved because he's a, since he's the son of Abraham, he's saying he's been chosen, he's been born again, and he's believed by faith. And all those, those two things are not against each other. They go with each other. For there to be faith, there needs to be supernatural life. They're not enemies. They're friends. And so, I remind you one more time, what's being highlighted is the Savior and that's why he concludes with verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. At the end of the day, what happened? At the end of the day, Zacchaeus did some stuff that we can really be thankful for. But what's the final say? What are we supposed to take from it? Here's what you're supposed to take from it. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, understand this. That word lost, 
Apollomy means to be ruined. The Son of Man came to seek and save the ruined. He came to seek and save the man who's on his knees saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. All I can do is beat my breast. I'm ruined. He came to save the baby who if you laid down and walked away from would be dead, having no hope to help himself. He came to save the ruin. Sometimes we hear lost and we just say, oh, the unbelieving. Yeah, they're the unbelieving that are walking around with the wrath of God upon them. Do you realize your lost neighbors? They're not just unbelieving. They're ruined under the wrath of God. John 3.36, whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or Romans 2, or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. When you see the lost, what you need to see, I make the visual. I, I've, I've told you this before. The visual I have is they used to have those water slides that went down that hill uh, in Rapid City, the Rushmore water slides, I think they were called. And some of the slides in the center of that hill, you would sit down and there would be this big clear tube that would slowly fill up with water. And it would fill up and it would fill up. And I remember as a kid, that's a lot of water filling up behind, behind me. And then all of a sudden they would push the button and all that water would come down and sweep you down the slide. Well, the picture I get that Paul's talking about there is he says, everyone in the world thinks God's just nice. He doesn't have a problem with me. Why? I haven't been struck by lightning yet. Things are going pretty good. And Paul says, yeah, that's the kindness of God. And that's meant to bring you to repentance. But there will be a day because of your heart and impenitent heart, God's wrath will fall out. It'll be in a day like pushing a button. Right now you feel safe, but in that day, God's wrath will come. And if Jesus was not a great Savior, one who seeked and saved the lost, none of us would be saved. Zacchaeus was not going to be saved unless he came into contact with Christ. And coming into contact with Christ isn't enough for the rich young ruler came into the contact with Christ. But God's mercy needs to fall on you. Are you humbled? Do you have any hope in and of yourself? I think of the song that we're going to sing written by Philip Bliss. 
the hymn called Hallelujah, What a Savior. Listen to this line. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You maybe came in here and said, God can't save me. I've known too much. Truth and rebelled against it. He can't have mercy on someone like me. He can't save someone like me. Tell Zacchaeus that. He made Zacchaeus willing in the day of salvation. And Zacchaeus, in his joy, followed Christ, walking away from his wealth, happily submitting to Christ as Lord. That can be done in your life. Maybe you say, I'm so selfish, there's no hope for me. Well, I got good news for you. He came for all so that those who trust in him might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who loved them and gave himself to them. He doesn't just forgive your sins, but he can actually begin to kill the selfishness inside your heart. And so my prayer is, that you would turn to no other Savior, that you would turn to no other idol, that you would turn to no other hope, but to God. Ezekiel 34, 11 says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. God is the Savior. Jesus is the Good Shepherd. He says, my sheep will hear my voice and they will come to me. And that he won't lose anything that the Father has given him. I want to end with Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me And understand that I am He. We're chosen to understand and to be witnesses and to believe. For or before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed And when there is no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. I think the number one challenge to God the Savior in this room is probably not Buddha, is probably not Allah, is probably not some idol you have set up in your house. What would challenge the Savior? What would be an idol? Would it not be yourself? Thinking that there's something in and of yourself, some 
anything, maybe if it's even a little bit, to just uh, start the saving process going. I have good news for you. God's the only Savior. He is the one who saves ruined sinners. And so if you feel broken, and you feel not good enough, and you feel that you continue to fail, I want you to know that your great high priest knows you're weak, knows you sin. We get commands that when we sin to come again and confess it, and he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Father, thank you for Christ. There would be no hope of salvation if Christ did not take our place on the cross, bear the wrath of God in our place, and us. Lord, I pray that you would now lift our hearts with joy. Any of us, Lord, that we're hanging on to anything in and of ourselves. Father, I pray that as we sing, what a Savior, we would happily, like a little child, like the tax collector, beat our breast and say, what a Savior. Father, have mercy on me. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.